episode of Angry Girl Music of the Indie Rock Persuasion. I'm your host, Amanda Starling, here to talk to you about all things intersectional feminism, DIY, and of course, the music. This week, I'm joined by Alex, also known as Cumulus. Alex has been writing music as a solo artist for some time, cultivating from influences like Sheryl Crow, among others. She's blended the catchiness of pop with the sensibility of punk, particularly with her ripping single, Retreat. That's what you just heard. And that's a brilliant follow-up to her latest record, Comfort World, which was produced by Mike Davis. Alex talks about the scene that cultivated her, the work done in the studio for Comfort World, and what's next. So with that being said, let's turn it over to some music by Cumulus and hear from Alex herself. Girl music at the Indie Rock Persuasion. How are things for you over in Seattle? Things are going good. Um, it's really beautiful outside. Uh, and, you know, the fall is happening. I love all that cheesy fall stuff, wearing my sweaters and my scarves. Um, just got back from like touring for five weeks and it was humid in most of the country. So I'm really excited to be back in my totally neutral kind of cold weather. There you go. That sounds pleasant. I know. I, I'm jealous. I wish that I could experience some of that right now. I'm in Florida, so. Oh, yeah. 
it's supposed to be, I think, in the 60s at some point this weekend, so that could be. Oh, that's pretty low for Florida. That's great. That's a chill day. Yeah, we get it for like one or two days. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> but that's okay. Well, I'll just have to live vicariously through you, and <laughs> in more ways than one, because uh, between your weather and your awesome career, which I'm really excited about. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. You- you just dropped a record here recently, uh, Comfort World. Mm-hmm. How's the reception been to that so far? Um, I think it's been really good. I mean, the people who have listened to it have, you know, have said really nice things about it. And I think it's, um, I think that I put a lot, I put all of myself into that album. I've kind of been telling people it's the most me that I feel like I've ever been able to document into music. And so when people tell me that they relate to it or that those songs are having an impact on their life, um, it really means the world to me because it's me in that record. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I, I think that, yeah, I'm giving a piece of myself to people and I think it's making an impact on just comforting people. And that's good because there's some hard times happening right now. Absolutely. And I think it's so beautiful that you've opened up so much of yourself through your music. Thank you. Absolutely. (laughs) Before we get into the record itself, I kind of want to talk about a little bit of your background in music. So Mm -hmm. how did you first get into playing music? Yeah, well, um, it kind of took me a long time. I think I've always, I've always remembered myself singing since I was a little kid. Um, But I never really And and I always kind of did really, I did a lot of teenage poetry about crushes and stuff in high school and everything. Um, But I never really like thought that I was writing songs or thought about putting it to music until I was in college. In high school, I I booked shows and I, um, and that was kind of where I got my start just in the music community and building community was just through booking shows for my friends, like having all ages shows in my town because I lived in a small town that just didn't have that available. Um, And then I started going to shows all of the time and getting to know other musicians who then eventually I started playing, um, you know, kind of like really helped lift me up and support me. But I would say I I really started playing actively and saying I'm a songwriter, like when I was like 21. Okay. Um, So kind of a late start. Um, But I, you know, before then, um, I hosted a radio show for a couple years. I was involved with my college radio station and the all ages music venues and just booking for years. So I think I knew that music was something I wanted to be involved in since I was a little kid, but I didn't really realize that I myself was a musician until a little bit later. That's so neat. And it's nice to hear that either you made things accessible to yourself or you had the access to do so much within the music community and kind of help grow it within your own space. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a really powerful thing about, um, you know, growing up in kind of like more little pocket areas rather than the big city in a way you get to like kind of have a lot of room to make an impact. Um, and the community really gets behind you. So when I was in, I'm from Whidbey Island. Um, and so like when I said I was in high school and there were no shows, there was a place called the IOOF Temple. And I'm pretty sure that most towns have like an Elks Lodge type temple thing like that. It's basically like an Elks Lodge in Oak Harbor. Mm-hmm. And I would just pay a hundred bucks um, to rent the space. And then 
charge $5 at the door and I'd make it back. And my dad helped run the door for me and stamp hands and I booked the bands and that was just what we did, you know? <laughs> That's so awesome so, to have that kind of support, like your dad helping you run a show. Yeah. And it was cool. It taught me a little bit about running a business, I guess, you know, but I was just trying to do some, I didn't drink or smoke in high school. So I was just kind of trying to like find cool things for myselfishly, like have something cool to do that wasn't boring and book my friends bands and then give my friends somewhere safe to hang out to. That's awesome. What did your parents think of you kind of getting into booking shows and having these kind of events? I think my dad really loved it. Um, so he was always a really big supporter of my music. So when I was 16, he bought me a drum kit and that was my first instrument. And I never even played drums in a band in high school. I just drummed in my living room while he cooked dinner and I'd just be <laughs> drumming all night. And not very many parents are patient with a kid drummer in their living room. Oh yeah. But yeah, my dad was totally into it. He started bringing me to blues concerts and stuff when I was probably like a baby <laughs> or like, you know, really, really young. I have like lots of memories of standing on it, sitting on his shoulders at like James Taylor and BB King and Johnny Lang and Bonnie Raitt and stuff like that. Um, wow. Type concerts. So yeah, he brought me up on all that adult contemporary and blues and folk world. That's so nice. And that's a good influence to have on you as you know, you expand your interest in music and did any of that have any influence on your songwriting as an adult? Um, definitely. I mean, I still, one of my funniest memories that I have is when I was, we were in high school and I was in high school and we were going on a trip to the EMP, which at the time was like the museum based in Seattle. And my dad tried to hand me a Slater Kinney record. He was like, Alexandra, here's this Slater Kinney record. I think you'd really like it. It's women making rock music. And at the time I thought, was too noisy for me. I was like, ah, this is too noisy. Cause I was like really into Jewel. <laughs> <laughs> I was really into Jewel and Alanis Morissette and Sheryl Crow. And at the time, Slater Kinney was just like, I couldn't handle it. Uh, and then later on, you know, fast forward like six or seven years and I'm in college and I'm learning about Riot Girl for the first time. And I'm like, oh my God, Slater Kinney is so cool. <laughs> them to me and I didn't even know um but yeah I mean I it's funny I think for a long time I kind of had uh I think when I first started writing songs I was really confused about what kind of music I wanted to make because I was really into punk music and Riot Girl, and um but at the same time I really liked making writing like pretty sounding songs and I think that it was like an interesting battle with my own femininity in a way. And now that I look back at it as an older person, like I think there was just kind of like always this like fear of um, being too girly or sounding too pretty. Um, and then I think the more I started getting familiar with what my voice was and the music that I wanted to make, I ended up going back to a lot of those people that I grew up on and going back into that Sheryl Crow and that Bonnie Raitt and that Jewel stuff and thinking a lot about it um, and how it had an, has had an impact on me decades later. That's so cool, though, because I feel like you've, your music, you've found that perfect blend, though, because it's like you can have the energy of sometimes a heavier like Riot Girl punk 
of the mm-hmm. 90s. But then some of your music does have that familiar, like, 90s pop sensibility to it. Like, mm-hmm. Cheryl Crow is definitely one of the people that I thought of while listening to your music. Oh, that's a huge honor because she's, I love her. <laughs> she's so great. Well, um, I talk a lot about, like, when people have asked me, like, my biggest influences, I actually, like, I I think Mira was the person that was my middle ground for that, like, Mira and Laura Veers. I started kind of, have you ever listened to them before? Um, not not closely. Yeah, they're from the Northwest. Um, I think they're both based out of, like, Portland now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I s- discovered them late in high school and early in college, and they kind of had that perfect, like, you know, they were in the indie rock world, and they wrote really beautiful songs, um, very very emotional, you know, but really intricate and beautiful guitar parts, like electric guitars, and sometimes they would be big, and sometimes they would be, like, hushed, and, um, but pop, like, just crazy songs that just get stuck in your head, mm-hmm. and so I think finding indie artists that kind of balance that world of, like, being in a full band and having like rock elements, but also still undeniably writing catchy pop songs. I needed to somehow find that in order to find myself. And so once I found them, I was like, Oh, you can combine all these elements. So, yeah. That's so awesome. That makes complete sense. And you've definitely accomplished that with your music. That's one of the things that I'm drawn to about it. Um, How did you start your project as Cumulus? Yeah. Um, well, I remember that I was in college and I was just, um, I got asked to like do a music blog or do some kind of blog with my friends. Um, and I was going to call the blog Cumulus and then the blog never really happened. And then I was also playing some songs and around town. And uh, interestingly enough, I mean, like, you know, for the topics of what you talk about in this podcast, a big part of it, I had a really cool, like, feminist music community in Bellingham when I was in college, and we started a Lady Fest Bellingham, which was really rad. Oh, awesome. Um, And we had a house show venue that was called Friendship City, and that's where I played my very first official Bellingham show, was at this um, house venue. And I think just having, like, um, we were really intentional about creating supportive spaces for marginalized voices and just like and kind of opening the doors for people who'd never been in bands before and people who'd never played shows before like that was just like a really important part of our music community was just kind of like letting everybody like who wanted to play have a space to play and um and I think without that I don't know if I would have found the confidence that I needed to move to Seattle and start taking it more seriously after college. Cause when I was in college, I, I had no idea music was something I did that consumed me in many ways. Like I was a radio DJ and, you know, on the board for the music venue, like all ages venue and stuff like that. But playing music was like something that was always kind of like my secret for a while or not secret, but just like something that I didn't totally like know that that was going to be my path. And then the more I started doing it and the, the more I started connecting with people through that, I started to realize that that was something that made me feel the best that I'd ever felt. And then when I moved to Seattle, there was no question in my mind that music was just what I was supposed to be doing, playing it. Um, so I have not really done anything relevant to my degree <laughs> ever since I left college. 
I mean, I graduated, but I, I never got anything like any kind of real adult job that had to do with what I went to college for. Um, I mostly just, you know, pursued music since the day I moved out of college life. And now I'm 30 and I've been playing under this name for almost 10 years. And so, yeah, I moved to Seattle. Um, I started playing with some other people as a band version of what I was doing. Um, turned it more into a rock band and we arranged the songs that I had written and went into the studio, recorded an album in Anacortis um, at Phil Elvrum from Mount Erie's studio called The Unknown. And then we made that album and we did a Kickstarter, like I think back in 2012 or 2013. And we ended up getting the Kickstarter, you know, fulfilled because we'd been playing music at that point around Seattle for like three years. And Chris Walla heard the album and then signed us to his label. And um, that's kind of how I've been doing it since. Just playing with various, you know, arrangements, but supported by Chris Walla has always really supported my music. And he helped me put out this most recent record as well. That's so awesome. And I love that you were cultivated by different scenes that just like uplifted you. And then you've had so much opportunity come your way. It's amazing that Chris Walla was able to like find your music and support your career so far. Um, how did that connection happen? Did he just like stumble upon your Kickstarter? Yeah, well, it's interesting enough. Um, so when I booked shows in high school, uh, I booked this band that was fronted by John Van Dusen, who was um, at the time in like an emo band. He was from Anacortes and I was from Oak Harbor and those towns are like 20 minutes apart. So I booked his band, and then we became really good friends. And then as we got older, oops, there's a text message. I hope you didn't hear that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But as I got older, um, uh, around college time, like when I started performing, um, John Van Dusen was in a band called The Lonely Forest. And The Lonely Forest was signed to Trans Records, which was Chris Wallace's label. So then by the time we were ready to put out our record, um, I think that somebody from The Lonely Forest had tipped Chris onto our music. Um, it was Sam Winston who was mixing our record at the time, who was um, really good friends of the Lonely Forest and working at Chris's studio. And so Chris ended up hearing it through them. And then we got signed onto his label and we were all label mates. And we went on our first tour with the Lonely Forest too. So wow. basically the friendships that I made when I was like 14 or 15 ended up being the thing that got me the opportunities in music that were happening to me when I was 25. That's so amazing. And that just says so much to me about like how important it is to like value your friendships and stuff. Cause you never know what kind of opportunities you can give each other. Yeah, definitely. I fully agree with that. It's really been blowing my mind lately. Just the way that um, you just never know what's going to happen with the people you meet. Yeah. You should treat everybody like, you know, you or they could change your life. You know, I don't know. It's just like everybody, everybody should be treated like you have no idea what's going to happen and how the karma will happen. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Cause I mean, good things can happen for any relationship in that sense. It's like whether they help you emotionally, you know, or as mentally in who knows, even a career thing could happen just like it has yeah. for you. Yeah. And I don't, I guess like, I'm like, I'm like, oh, I don't mean that to sound like a, 
a driven thing. It's more just like I work in customer service a lot, right? So I make people their drinks. I make people their coffee or whatever. And it's like, you just never know that's like one weird customer interaction you have, how that's going to like turn out like a week later when you see them somewhere, you know? So yeah. just treat, treat everybody like nice. I don't, I don't really get it when people don't treat everybody nice. It's like, come on. <laughs> Me neither. You never know. I mean, those people, even short encounters can have like, you know, an impact at some point you can make or break somebody's day with how you treat them. So yeah. that's amazing. Mm-hmm. I love your sensibility for that. Um, and so what were your first shows like playing as Cumulus? You kind of started to talk a little bit about that and how you kind of were able to kind of grow within that Bellingham scene. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I kind of played by myself with an electric guitar. That's how I kind of started doing it. Um, and I would just play really respectful house show like type vibes. It was kind of funny because, um, I would always be like, uh, I would, I mean, they were like, mostly the shows had like punk bands or something on them, but I'd just be playing by myself with my guitar and it was still like equally respected, which I really like, you know? Wow. So I think it's kind of like, I never really got into playing like singer songwriter bills that often. I, I'm mostly like, I kind of always have, even when I was playing by myself, been kind of involved in the more like DIY and punk community, mm-hmm. like Um, even though I I listen to a lot of folk and Americana, but that's never really been for some reason, like the scene that I ended up playing shows in. Uh, I've always kind of played with a lot of, a lot of awesome bands. That makes it really fun then. And you're able to kind of develop at that point and then you ended up having your own full band. So that's really cool. Yeah. And it was really interesting because, um, I mean, I kind of, so I was doing that around 2008, 2009, and there wasn't a lot of other women I saw, like, playing electric guitar and singing songs, like, by themselves, or even at that time, at least as far as, like, the indie community went, like, I just didn't really know where to look for, to see other women doing that. There were a few, um, like, I mentioned, like, Laura Veers and Mira, but their, like, arrangements were, like, really lush and like just like they had like full bands that I couldn't really envision yet um for myself uh but when I got it was it was a couple I think it was like 2015 right around the time that I was kind of searching for inspiration and figuring out what I was going to do on my new album um I started like really getting into Waxahachie nice like and Waxahachie actually like super influenced me, I think these last few years, just because um, I also love the multiple worlds that they're able to kind of exist in, like in the folk world and in the punk world and in the indie world and the singer songwriter world. Um, and she like plays a lot of the same influences as me. I just saw her play the other night and she started out her set with a Lucinda Williams song and Lucinda Williams is one of my favorite um, country, Americana, blues kind of genre songwriters. And so that was really cool. Uh, but yeah, I feel like there's a lot more women right now, um, a lot of women and uh, like just amazing non-binary artists out there just like challenging our ideas of what it is to make. Like punk music doesn't even sound, isn't even – loud guitars and bands anymore like it's um I really think that it's like not men 
expanding the boundaries of what punk music and alternative music is right now. Uh, and that's really exciting to me. Absolutely, because there's so many different sounds being cultivated and so many people who are just gaining influence from each other. And there's kind of a receptiveness that I feel like exists whenever you're within um, an otherwise marginalized community because your openness, whether it's to sound, art, to ideas, anything, I feel like is just wider. So I, I agree with you. I totally think that it's women and um, non-binary folks and gender non-conforming and such that are really just the most um, exploring of that. So it's really mm-hmm. cool to hear and see that just expand across music. So, yeah. Um, yeah, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, too, was um, how does kind of songwriting work for you? What Do you approach the music or the lyrics first, typically? A lot of the time come at the same time, um, but actually, like, I mostly I get a melody and words at the same time. So wherever I'm, like, um, when I'm walking or when I'm in the shower or the bath or, like, driving especially, I get like full on melodies with words in them. So I think ever since I was a little kid, I remember when I had to like memorize like all the provinces of Canada or all the capitals and cities of the US, Mm -hmm. I'd write a song to like help me remember it. And so I feel like to me, whenever I like, I rarely like write words on note on a notebook that don't already have a melody affiliated with them. So really like the most amazing tool that has changed my entire life in the last 10 years is probably having the iPhone and having voice memos. (laughs) (laughs) I remember before I had an iPhone, I would have to call my own voicemail and just sing into my own voicemail (laughs) Uh, because I did, you know, so um, yeah, I have hundreds and hundreds of voice memos of me just kind of being like, I was walking down the street and then, you know, it's, it's so my words come to me with music in my brain. That's so um, neat. And then I try to figure out how to apply them to an instrument. A lot of the time I'll go and just kind of go into GarageBand and put a beat and then just sing my melody and sing my words over a beat. Mm-hmm. Um, or I'll just take out the guitar and play my favorite chords and just kind of like work around, work with it for a while until something sticks. Um, but yeah, uh, I think, I think that my music and words kind of come to me at the same time, I guess. That's really neat. Cause, um, I feel like if I were a songwriter, I'd do something probably similar in that sense, because words to me are so much a part of the, what I pay the most attention to in music kind of my gut reaction as a writer to pay attention to what's being said and then explore what's being felt through the music. So uh, that's really cool that you can do both at the same time in that sense and then just continue to expand it with your instruments. Yeah. Well, I feel like, you know, when you're just saying, when you're just saying words, I think the coolest part about songwriting is getting the words to stick, you know, like how do you get the words to, how you sing them or the melody that you choose to match with them is such a big part of how the listener feels what you're saying. Mm -hmm. So I guess to me, you know, it's when I have words, if I do come up with words that are really important to me, they're only going to work if I find the right melody, you know, otherwise it'll just kind of, it could fall out 
you know, in one ear, out the other. Like, you know, I think about that sometimes when I'm listening to songs. I'm like, oh, man, like, I like that song, but I don't remember anything from it, you know? So, like, I'm always, like, searching for, in my mind, I think, like, that's as, you know, the words are really, really probably the most important part for me, but I want to be able to make that stick. So I'm always kind of thinking about that. No, that makes complete sense. And I can tell you right now that you're accomplishing that. I think especially with your new single retreat, because the, I feel like the whole like repetitiveness to it, a lot of the way that you arrange lyrically and just the way that you deliver it vocally, that's a very unforgettable song. Thank you. Thanks so much, Amanda. Absolutely. Can you kind of walk through writing that song? Yeah. Well, I remember, so I was um, working at a restaurant and I'd just gotten off work where I think I was on a break and I was just um, at the bar eating my break food and, you know, and somebody kind of came up to me who's a regular and started like talking to me when I wasn't that interested in talking to anybody. And I was pretty sure I was making it pretty like obvious physically that I was like not engaged. And when I responded, I responded in a pretty like deadpan, like, okay, sure. I'm going to contribute, but like not that interested kind of way. Mm-hmm. My body language was like to me pretty obviously disinterested. Yeah. Um, and they still like, they didn't really get it and they ended up kind of like giving me a back massage in a really creepy way and it just really was upsetting you know and it's just like um and so I went home and wrote this song about it I mean that was one of the things I think I already had some of it written but that was one of the moments that kind of contributed to the song and um I think that basically in my mind when I wrote this song it was just about I talk a lot on stage about uh reading nonverbal communication as well as verbal communication when we're talking about, um, you know, making sure that somebody's as interact as interested in an interaction as you are. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that a lot of people forget when we start talking about consent, you know, is like people are, I think that there's, uh, there's communication happening at all times. Like, when you're interacting with a person, you know, and it's not, it shouldn't just be up to the words, you know, um, because there's a lot of things being said, whether we're verbally saying it or not. Um, and so to me in my mind in this song, I was like, if I don't say yes, then I'm asking you to leave. That's like all those moments where you're like physically exuding, like you're keeping your headphones on, right? You're on the bus and your headphones are on and this person's asking you what you're listening to and you're not responding because you just don't want to engage and you just want to do your thing. You know, you're tired and you don't feel like getting into it. And then they keep on going because they think, oh, maybe she didn't hear me or maybe, you know, obviously they're interested because I'm here and they are there and so they just keep on pushing so then the next line is like and when I say no you better retreat like because if you've actually gotten me to the point where I have to tell you no then you better be ready for it because I'm kind of pit I'm pretty pissed in a way you know in these interactions so that's kind of like in my mind what that song was about and then I was just thinking about um also some of the really inspiring articles that I've read about consent and how I like to talk about it with people um, is also, you know, when you hear guys 
kind of talk about, oh, it's so scary out there right now because if I even approach a, if I even approach a girl, like she's going to think that I'm assaulting her or something, you know? And it's like, oh my God, like let's break this down. Okay. Um, are you approaching them in an area where they have the ability to walk away if mm-hmm. they're not interested? Um, are you approaching them in an area where there are people around so that they can feel safe if they are disinterested? Are you approaching them in a way that like enables them to have options when respond? You know, things like that um, I thought were just like really interesting. Like, you know, like buses, for example, like I was mentioning earlier, you can't escape a bus. You know, you're there. Yeah. You're sitting there, you know, and it's like people don't really realize if they're not used to evaluating the space that they occupy, like they don't think about those details when they're approaching people. No, they Um, don't. They don't think about that. They don't think about the physical, the physicality of it. Like the way that you're physically approaching somebody. Like mm -hmm. if you're a person who is very tall or has an intimidating build as somebody who might be masculine in that sense, you know, you could, be sending the message of intimidation or threat just by literally the way that you carry yourself or the way that you approach someone and all kinds of stuff like that too. Yeah. And then I was thinking about like when people talk over you and they don't listen to anything that you have to say, well then how do you know they're going to listen to and respect what you have to say in more intimate contexts? Mm -hmm. So to me, it's like, I don't think that men really realize that like, it's more than just like, there's like about 50 things happening in any given moment that will make me feel, um, that will tell me whether I can be feel safe around that person. You know what I mean? And so this song was kind of my way of like talking about the little things that kind of build up and, you know, kind of inform your decision about whether you'd like to be there or not be there. (laughs) No, that's so valuable, especially educating your crowd, because, you know, you never know what's happening to other people. I think about in show spaces where how many times I've like had to do little things like throw elbows to get a dude to back off kind of thing, or like, Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of stuff could be happening immediately. And I like that song as a way to kind of like, um, in a very upbeat way, call out that shit. Like, and it's amazing. And I, honestly just want to play this in front of every like person who needs to hear it because it's <laughs> impactful and it's nice to have something that's calling out body language and approach in the way that people do um just treat non-men mm-hmm. and not get the damn signals <laughs> yeah yeah and I wanted it to be catchy uh because I wanted it to be stuck in people's heads so that they'd be thinking about this stuff I jokingly thought about, man, if a guy is ever approaching a girl and he ends up thinking about this song and he follows these instructions, well, then <laughs> I've totally won. Like, that's great. Mission accomplished. All right. So that's the plan. We need to brainwash the men of America with this song so that they yep. fucking get it finally. <laughs> <laughs> it would work. I think this is an excellent plan. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Um, gosh, that song's so great. And so many of your songs are just great in general because I loved unpacking Comfort World as well. It was such a great record. What was it like writing and recording Comfort World? Yeah, um, well, the first, so the first album I did 
we recorded in like a week and we already had the songs arranged before we went into the studio. Um, this newer album, it was a long break in between albums because I was kind of just going through life stuff and figuring out what I was even doing and was music still my, you know, I wasn't giving enough time to music. And I think that, um, a lot of life situations kind of ended up like shaking me and making me realize that music was something that I should never lose sight of again. And that I should always make it the main priority. Um, and so that's kind of like where this album was coming from. I'd just gone through a really big breakup. Like that was a five-year relationship and, um, I was living on my own for the first time in a long time. I'd just gotten fired from a job and I'd never been fired in my life. Um, and I, you know, so I was on unemployment for a bit and we all know applying to jobs is like one of the most dehumanizing things ever. It's like really hard. Yeah. And, um, so just kind of going through a lot of moments of like really low self-confidence and just feeling really lost and, um, writing this album was really therapeutic to me. And I got the opportunity to go into the studio, um, not just for a week, but for like as long as it took to finish this album. Because um, at this point, when Chris first approached me in 2013, we already had the album done. Mm -hmm. But he actually runs a studio in Seattle called the Hall of Justice. So for this album, I got to actually use his studio. And um, basically, like any moment that there wasn't a band paying to be in there, I got to be in there. So it would be like, you know, a couple days in like, you know, my producer, Mike Davis would call me and he'd be like, Hey Alex, uh, nobody's using the studio this Tuesday at two. Do you want to come in? And we're just like, yes. You know, so we spent months of, you know, going into the studio basically whenever we could. So the album took seven months a lot because, you know, we were patching different sections of studio time together and stuff like that. Um, But what it allowed for me was it allowed me to take time to reflect on the songs and, um, and how they were going. And it allowed us time to like really just sit in the studio and experiment and experiment and experiment and find the different ways that the, I really feel like this record showed me some crazy things that I didn't even know music could do. Like, I just really feel like these songs had a direction that was like meant to be and they were revealing it was being revealed to us and we had to follow it you know so kind of made me we brought in some players that were friends of mine so um I had a friend Colin Ritchie who played the drums on the on most of the record um and my friend Eric Walters and um and my producer Mike also played a lot of instruments on the record um and we would just go in there in the morning and I'd show them the song, like I'd play it for them on my guitar. And then they never listened to a demo or anything. And then we would just play through the song like 150 times. Like it would be like 8 a.m. or 9 a.m. And we'd be playing through the song until about 1 p.m. Wow. And around 1 p.m. we would have like drums that we thought were pretty cool. And we would have gotten to like some kind of a basic arrangement like first chorus, first chorus, okay, I think this part should be a bridge. And then we'd experiment from there, you know, just adding different layers and seeing what, you know, synthesizers. And It was like a toy store of synths and instruments in the studio too. So 
it was just like a really, really interesting experience. It's kind of made me think that I don't really ever want to go back into the studio thinking that I know exactly how I want a song to turn out because I think one of the most beautiful parts of being in the studio and recording music is, um, is getting to discover what the song is going to be like, you know, so you can go in there with the, I like I'll always have like the basic kind of skeletal frame, Mm. but you know, there were songs that I thought were going to be more pop punk that turned into being pedal steel like lighter or something, you know, so there's some really interesting, like that, the record really like kind of changed my world and how I think about recording music. Um, but yeah. And then with that going into the studio and being unemployed and being really sad and feeling very alone gave me something to look forward to and it gave me something to work towards. So I also just kind of feel like, um, this record kind of saved me in a really dark time and gave me something to feel like I was contributing and that I was worthwhile, you know, in a moment that I felt pretty worthless. (laughs) So that was really, uh, really important. Yeah, it is. And it's awesome because you going in with that openness in spite of some vulnerability had to have done wonders for you musically in that sense, because you were open to trying new things and then it, it clearly lent and paid off so well because it's such a great record. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, some of the themes that I kind of started to unpack a little bit in this record was kind of like you're kind of confronting the moments of like complacency in your life and mm-hmm. some of the struggles and determining whether you wanted to go forward or, you know, stay put. Yeah. Um, is that an accurate kind of a belief or understanding of the record as a whole. That's a very accurate, <laughs> like, <laughs> well, way to go. Amanda. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty spot on. Um, I mean, so basically like I found myself at the time of starting to rec- actually be in the studio on this record, I'd spent like the last three years, like working a corporate job that just made me really unhappy. And, um, And it was like, you know, in a relationship where we like really loved each other, but it wasn't healthy and we were, we just weren't the best people for each other, even though we loved each other. Um, But I think that both of those situations that I were, that I was in were not situations that I was actually like able to take myself out of. Like, I think I had to kind of have him call it and in my relationship. And I think that for my job, I just had to get fired because I like, wasn't gonna, I was, I didn't have the, the foresight to like really realize like what was going on with myself. Mm -hmm. And then when it was all over, I was like, holy moly, like I'd felt like this weight lifted off of me and I didn't really, I just couldn't believe like how I'd just spent a large chunk of my life, like not, not feeling totally myself. And so that's kind of what this album was about. Um, I re- and when I was on a drive through Eastern Washington, I saw um, a billboard that said Comfort World, and it was a billboard for an abandoned mattress store. Oh my gosh. And, yeah. I, right? I know. And this was at the time that like pre being fired and like pre breakup. And at the moment I thought, oh, this is like so... I love the font on that sign. And, <laughs> um, and I think that like, you know, I like remember being like comfort world. That's like a good thing. Like 
no matter what happens, we'll be able to with, you know, we'll be able to stay strong through the storm and I'll always have like my comfort foundation. Mm -hmm. And and then that foundation fell apart. And then I realized, oh my gosh, it was like, you know, months later and I was thinking about comfort world again. And I was like, should the album still be called comfort world? Is this still a concept that like sticks out to me? And then I started talking with somebody about it and I was like, oh my God, like it's even more real now because comfort world actually isn't about like living in a comfortable bubble. It's about like the dangers of only making choices revolving around comfort and stability. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, it's a real privileged place to be in, to be able to make choices that are scary and to be able to take risks. But I really think that, um, yeah, for a long time, I was just not making choices that were helping me grow. I was just staying still. And it's really, really inviting and um, enticing to stay there all the time because it's cozy. So that's literally what this album was about, was about me peeling back those layers and not really knowing what the next day was going to bring, not really knowing um, what was going to happen with whatever my situation was, but chasing it anyways, because I knew I was chasing a better version of myself. And I love that the record is what brought you out of kind of your comfort world that kind of like allowed you to explore and, you know, push boundaries in the sense of what you could do musically and everything. So it sounds like this was just a really holistic experience for you in that sense. Yeah. And I was also like surrounding myself with people uh, who really believed in me in a time that I was having like struggling to believe in myself. And so I think I'd um, previously like, you know, I'd also kind of been in some like in some relationships in friendships and musical relationships that weren't totally healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, so being able, um, Mike Davis, the guy who produced my album, he was Chris Wallace's assistant for a couple years and he's 22 at the time of making the record, um, wow. maybe 21, 22. And I'm almost at this time, almost 30. And, um, he was just like a really inspiring person to be around. And when he heard my demos, he was blown away and I was, and he, and he saw all this potential in the songs that like I didn't see in the moment. Mm-hmm. And so um, I remember one of the first days in the studio, the first day we got together, I actually played the drums on a track. We didn't end up keeping my version of the drums, but just the fact that he like put the drumsticks in my hand and was like, Alex, go in there and try out, try out that beat you were thinking, you know? And I was just like, what? He's like, yeah, go do the drums. Like I'll press record. Like it'll sound great. And I was just like, Oh, okay. And then like, we came up with like a demo version starting point with the song with me on drums. And then he did it again. Like a week later on bass, he hands me a bass and is like, do you play bass? And I'm like, no, I've like never played the bass. And he's like, well, it's easy. You can just like, here, like, try something. And then we like track something with me on bass. And so just having somebody actually challenging me to do things that I'd never tried with full confidence that I could do it was something, a very new feeling to me. Like, I feel like I'd, um, I hadn't really had that happen before in a musical context. And so that was really, uh, just really empowering. And it kind of made me feel 
it reinforced, it also like made me find new things in myself that I was good at, that I didn't even know I was good at. So now I'm actually like helping out on other people's records and like hearing things that I think a couple years ago I wouldn't have been able to hear because I think I had visions of how the songs could be, but I never knew, I never trusted them enough to say them out loud, you know? But now I'm somebody that's like, you should you sing something for me and I will have uh, all of these visions about where it could go or what you could do. And, and I'm like, and, uh, yeah, I guess it's just crazy. It's interesting. So it was a super empowering, uh, experience that, uh, has had a residual impact on me. It's still now in my confidence as a player and a songwriter. That's so amazing. And it's nice when you have people like that, that are literally in your corner, helping you develop and grow as you're writing the music and putting it all together. It's really special. Um, you know, with that, how do you feel you've developed or grown as a musician since you released? I never meant it to be like this. Yeah. Well, I think, um, I guess I think there's just like a little bit more intentionality behind what I do. I feel like when I was, that record got put out in 2013 and some of those songs I'd written while I was in college when I'd first started writing songs. And I think that record was almost honestly, like I feel like those songs were almost an accident in a way, like where like I was writing songs without fully realizing what I was doing. And, um, and then I, you know, and then I'd be like, Oh, that's a song, you know? And then there it was, that's a song. Um, Whereas like this album was like, I was setting out to write songs, you know what I mean? So it was just kind of um, just a different experience to like actually know that I like catchy choruses or like that I like, you know, like I like these kinds of melodies or that I like this kind of guitar tone. Like there's just a lot more. um, Yeah. I just, I feel like I just kind of know what I like and know my strengths a lot more than I did on that first album. So it's all just a little more realized. Definitely. You've done that for sure. It seems like musically and lyrically. I mean, I think about like tough crowd, for example, it seems so much of that song was about like owning your strength and failures and stuff in spite of everything going around you and stuff. And I think that maybe that that's like the first song I thought of actually, when you started kind of describing about like just finding your strengths in that sense and just freaking owning it and keeping on going. So that's nice to hear that, you know, you have that view outside of that song too, even. Yeah, definitely. A tough crowd is um, like a, I very much write songs, even on the first album, like end of the world, for example, is one of the songs that I think about when I talk about this, but I'm always kind of giving advice to myself Um, in the moments that I need it most, like, um, so tough crowd was a moment where I literally came home and I was being really hard on myself. And I, um, I don't even remember what for, to be honest, but I was just like, just general life, like not going the way I thought it was going to supposed to be going. I was like, gosh, Alex, can I swear on this podcast? Absolutely. Oh yeah. You know, I was like, gosh, Alex, you're really fucking things up. (laughs) Like literally I was like, saying that to myself. And then I opened my, um, my iMovie, which is what I do sometimes when I have a thought mm-hmm. and I just picked up my guitar and I was like, you're a fuck up, you know? And I was just kind of venting and just like talking shit about myself basically <laughs> into this video journal. And then I started thinking about it and I was like, and I, 
the way I was singing it was kind of catchy. And then I was like, I was like, man, I'm being really hard on myself right now because like everybody fucks up. Mm -hmm. So then it just kind of turned into this. I do kind of like songs that actually like lyrically grow, like whether from the beginning it kind of is an, is an I statement. And then in the end of it, by, by the end of the song, it's a we statement or whether it's like, you know, the beginning of the song takes place in the morning and the end of the song takes place in the evening. I've always kind of been intrigued by that movement lyrically in a song. Mm -hmm. um, so I think I, I kind of like went with that kind of idea. I was just, uh, at first I was feeling really hard on myself and then I started thinking about if I was talking to another, another person, what would I tell them, you know? I'd tell them that I'm here for them and that it's okay and that we're all make that we all make mistakes. And then by the end of the song, it was much more of a unifying anthem for everyone. So, yeah. I love that so much. And yeah, I think that that's the best way to approach kind of those kind of struggles where you have those like self doubt or frustration with yourself and then you turn it into something to where it can be empowering for not only you, but anybody who's like present or hearing this. So that's so awesome. And it's, it's cool because I feel like in many ways that kind of reflects what you ended up doing for yourself throughout the entire record. So that's really special. Thanks. Yeah, I definitely think a, a big thought on my mind was like if someone else was going through the things that I'm going through, what kind of album would they need to get them through it? Mm -hmm. and, or what kind of song would they need? And that's what I kind of sought to write. Well, I think you accomplished it. That's for sure. Thanks. Absolutely. Well, what are some things that you'd like to do with your music that you maybe haven't tried yet? Uh, well, I mean, I think I'd like to, I'd still like to be experimenting a lot with genre to, you know, I think that there's a lot of room within making guitar music. You know, I, I do listen to a lot of country and Americana and, um, so I, I'm one of my biggest influences is this band called Magnolia Electric Company. That's one of my favorite, like, alt-country kind of bands. Um, and recently, like, Kevin Morby and Waxahachie actually covered them, like, did a Jason Molina cover EP, and I was like, oh, my God. Because Jason Molina, um, he's, he passed away a couple years ago, really young, from struggles with alcoholism. And he's one of those songwriters that, not that many people know about, but if you do know about them and you find out this other person knows about them, then you're probably going to be friends. You know what I mean? Like there's those niche <laughs> artists that you're yeah. like, oh, you know that artist, and you love their songs. Well, then we're going to get along, right? So <laughs> I was, when I heard that, I was like, oh my gosh. Um, but on anyway, like, and then I, I listened to a lot of, um, I've been listening to a lot of Ryan Adams and Jason Isbell lately and Casey Musgraves and stuff like that. So Part of me is like, dang, is my next record going to be a country record? I don't know. Like, <laughs> um, so, but I also kind of really like electronic music elements um, with Born in the Dark and um, Comfort World track and Wake Me. A couple songs on this album, we did a lot more like electronic and experimental percussion. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. So there's all kinds of areas that I'd like to explore, but it really, I still feel like it's the song, the songs will ultimately kind of tell me what direction they're going to go. Cause every time I, if I sit down and say, well, I'm going to write a country song, like 
it it's probably not going to turn into a country song so it'll it'll blow my mind like that so um so musically i think i just want to keep on you know diving into myself and writing songs that mean a lot to me i think i'd like to kind of start talking about more broader experiences other than just my own mm-hmm. um i think that i also think that there's a lot of things going on in the world right now that are sparking a lot of thoughts in my mind about the songs I want to write, but um, I think writing a good political song is so hard, like so hard to write that stuff without sounding preachy. Um, And there's a lot of like uh, stigma almost against writing a political song, you know, or at least I feel like there was for a while because it was just like looked at as being really cheesy. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think now that's, that we're in the post-Trump time, I think that's kind of not a thing anymore. I think we're actually kind of realizing it's really important to make your voice heard if you have the platform to do that. Um, so I'm really interested in kind of figuring out the things I want to say and finding, you know, and figuring out a a way to say them that I like to listen, that I think is a good song. <laughs> No, that's awesome. You're already uh, heading in that direction, though, because I think about retreat. I mean, you know, the way that we interact with people and, you know, with body policing and the way that people do that social interaction stuff, that's like the foundation of, you know, political argument for some people these days and stuff. So it's like mm-hmm. it's really important messaging that you've got out there. So I think you're already heading that way. And if that's the case, you're going to kick ass at it. <laughs> Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think, um, you know, I've always kind of grown up with the idea that personal is political. Mm -hmm. um, But I think that that's especially becoming more widely accepted now because I kind of feel like that wasn't always um, like an accepted notion a lot of the time. Um, I feel like uh, feminism and and has always kind of been delegitimized by a lot of um, academic in a way or people in politics because we're talking about personal experiences and we're talking about, you know, things that we've been through and, um, and, you know, we don't have enough stats or we don't have enough proof or we don't have, but I think, I I feel like I'm finally kind of seeing um, not like a greater language, like uh, a more like the actual wide, wider narrative of, um, politics is actually coming around to the duh that the personal is political and that what happens to our bodies and things that we go through um, and the things that we experience and the stories that we have to tell are valid and important and should make an impact. That's really well said because the things that happen to us directly in that sense are ultimately what impacts our quality of life and our opportunity. So yeah, it's going to have to be political at this point if we want to be able to keep each other safe and Mm -hmm. have accessible opportunity. So definitely agree with you on that. And I I can't wait to hear your thoughts through music on all of this. It's, I feel like you definitely have the ability to just nail it. That's for sure. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I definitely, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Sorry. (laughs) Or just like thinking a lot about it. I mean, I feel like that's kind of like in a way too, like struggling, like people, like I struggled, you know, with, um, like with mental health and I kind of put that a lot into this album. And I think that there's just a lot of 
a lot of really amazing storytellers out there right now that are doing the personal is political thing. Like we all are as songwriters, especially if you are a woman or you are um, a, a person of color, or if you are like a gender nonconforming artist right now, telling your truth in your songs and putting them out there to the world like that in itself is a political act, no matter what you're talking about, like no matter what you're singing about, like if you're singing about your experience, then that in itself is a really brave act. Um, Mm -hmm. Just existing, you know, is an act of bravery. And I think that that's something I, I try to remind myself too. Absolutely. That's really well said. And just the presence and expression can make a world of a difference for somebody else out there who doesn't realize that they have the same ability to make the same expression. Yes. That's always been like my number one goal of being in a band is to shout out to everyone that you can do it too. Like I wrote this song with two chords you can do it. Nobody can tell you what a song is. Only you get to decide what a song is. A song can be whatever you want it to be. Like nobody can tell you like that your voice is bad. It's your voice. You know, things like that. There's just all this, uh, a lot of fear that goes into creating things and being, you know, things that hold people back from creating things. And um, I wish that, I think the world would be a much brighter place if everybody was able to create things and not feel not feel scared absolutely well that's really well said and i always want that opportunity for people like you and people who don't even realize they have the talent yet that's for sure um so i always like to throw a really fun question at the end of every episode to my guests um if you could play with any three musicians or bands in your own show they can be currently active or you can bring them back from the dead. Who would it be? Oh, dang. Well, it would probably be, uh, it would probably be Bruce Springsteen. Ooh. Um, hmm. Bruce Springsteen. But, you know, and probably... Oh my gosh, this is a very hard question. Isn't it? <laughs> <sighs> okay, probably Bonnie Raitt, Bruce Springsteen, and Waxahachie. I think that would be a very fun show. Oh, God, that's an awesome show. I love that lineup. I, hell, I would love to see it at some point. This is amazing. <laughs> Can we get like you and Waxahachie opening for Bruce Springsteen? That would be sick as hell. World, you heard it. Make it happen. (laughs) Right? That's the whole point of me doing this, though, is because I always want to put the vibe into the universe. Oh, hey, these people are really awesome. They exist. If you somehow hear about them, make it happen. So yeah, (laughs) that would be sick. I'm always surprised by who I see end up on some of these larger tours and stuff. So who knows? I would be thrilled to see you playing with like Waxahachie and with Bruce Springsteen and everything. So I'm (laughs) fingers crossed sending every vibe. Let's do this. Hell yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, what are some goals that you have for yourself um, uh, as a musician over maybe the next year or so? Like, what do you want to do next with Cumulus? Well, I really want to travel. You know, I just want to be on tour a lot. And I'd love to go and see places that I've never seen. So I've done, you know, a couple national tours of the U.S., um, but I'd really like to get out to Japan or, you know, Europe and the U.K., Australia. These are all places that Um, I would love to see, and I mean, to be honest, like 
I'm never going to go and see those places without playing music because uh, I'm broke. (laughs) It's one of those things where like playing music actually allows you to be able to go and see places, you know, and kind of make it something that, you know, like at least, you know, it's like kind of covered. It's touring is very expensive, but you know, it's like, yeah, music is how I will probably see the world if I get it, if I get to go and see it. And I really hope I do. Um, so I'd really like to just play music for as many people as I can and see places I've never seen. Um, and then in my own life right now, I'm just kind of trying to figure out, you know, I'm focusing creativity and focusing music, um, as the priority in my life. So I recently like, you know, just kind of stopped working at as many restaurant shifts, you know, and just kind of like, I just got an um, opportunity to start teaching songwriting and in schools. So I'm doing a little bit of that here in Seattle. And that's really amazing being able to teach kids and, and work with kids and get them excited about music. Um, I really like want to be more involved with more community nonprofits that focus around music. Mm-hmm. Um, and like our own community radio station, KEXP is a really great place I want to start, I want to be getting more involved in. So there's a lot of like causes and basically I just want my life to feel um, creatively fulfilling. Like I just want to be surrounded by um, people that I love who really believe in me and I believe in them and make great music and see the world. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty much what I'm after. Hell yeah. I love the sound of that. And I hope all of it happens for you because that sounds like so many great opportunities to just grow as a person and grow creatively and just have every opportunity. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, where can everybody keep up with you on the internet? Yeah. Well, I'm on uh, Twitter and Instagram. I think my, let me look really quick. I always kind of forget what my, um, yeah, so I'm on Twitter and Instagram um, under the name Cumulus underscore songs. So that's me on Twitter. And then on Instagram, I am Cumulus dot songs. Um, and then you can find me on Facebook and um, we're on Bandcamp, Cumulus dot Bandcamp dot com and uh, iTunes and Spotify and all of that good stuff. Awesome. Well, everybody's going to have to make sure that they follow you on all the social and get their ears on your music because it's fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. And our new album, Comfort World, you know, it's been a long time in the making and I I really believe in it. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited for people to hear it. It's a week old, which is so it's just a baby. So get on it now. All right. Yeah, this is this is definitely a fresh record that you it's, it's amazing. Everybody go listen to it. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks so much for joining. Yeah, thank you for having me. What a great conversation.
you just heard Cumulus. Thank you so much to Alex for her time and to Talia Miller at the Brixton Agency for setting up the interview. Alex is a rising star in creating impactful anthems, and Cumulus is only going to get better. I'm excited to follow Alex's career and impactful music coming out of the Pacific Northwest. So that's it for this week, but you can always keep up with me online. Follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for regular updates. Subscribe and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Google Play, Pocket Casts, Overcast, and more. Want to tell me what you think of the podcast? Leave a review on any of the apps. I'd love to hear from you. I'm always booking guest spots, so hit me up at angrygirlmusic at gmail.com. Whether you write and play music, run a blog, take photos, run publicity, or book shows, this can be a space for you. Send me a link to your work, and let's chat. It's finally here, the week of the very first ever live podcast taping at the Fest. This Saturday, October 27th at 4.30 p.m., I'll be on stage at the Hippodrome with some of the pod favorites, including Gutless, Expert Timing, and Slingshot Dakota. I am thrilled and honored for this opportunity to get FaceTime with not only these incredible musicians and friends, but with you too. So don't miss out on the fun if you're in Gainesville, and if not, be sure to keep an eye out on Twitter for a live stream. Probably going to take a little week or two break after the live show, after all this excitement, so try to stay tuned. Make sure that uh, you check out all the awesome things we'll be releasing in the coming weeks. But until next time, hug some friends, because now it's time to fest!
Will you walk away? 